Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, 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 we meet again. That's right. Well, this is more of a straight-up interview with Barry Katz. Um, if you're not familiar with Barry Katz, um, if you're, you know, if you're a comedian or you're in the business, everybody knows who Barry Katz is. But maybe um, you're not familiar with him. We'll go uh, go do a search on his name, and you'll know all about Barry Katz. He's been in the business a long time, and um, well, you'll you'll go. You'll go. You do the you do the research. <laughs> but uh, you know, it took us a while to get through all the personal stuff. You know how we met and all that stuff. And then I had all these questions I wanted to ask because you know how when you are doing comedy or whatever you're doing, you have all these theories. And I have a lot of theories. And this is why this is, and this is why that is. And only until you throw them by somebody else, you'll know whether they agree or whether they think, oh well, that's not why I think that happens. I think this is why it happens. And Sometimes you change your opinion, sometimes you don't, but it's always interesting to hear. So by the time we got to that part of the interview, we ran out of time. So maybe we'll do it again, maybe we won't. Only time will tell, but you'll, uh, here it is, here's the interview. All right? Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Mr. Barry Katz. (laughs) Roll in the show, Aristotle. And Barry, if you're listening to this, I think I did a nice intro. It was very nice. Very professional. Now entering Nerdist.com. A very funny guy, Todd Glass. Can you bring this? call me back this time. I can put my headphones off in the intro. We're done. The Todd Glass Show launches August 12th. Todd. Hey, it's Zach. Elf Listen, man, I really want to come on the, the podcast. I've got stuff to promote. Comedy Central presents... Todd I do it big. 
You know, you have to make like a big deal. Of, oh, who's this? Ryan Regan. Oh. Again. Oh. Oh. If you don't want me to do the podcast, just, I don't know, let me know that. Do you want me to beg? God, it's Aaron. Mark. I'm the guy who can't come on the Todd Glass Show. What do I fucking need to do? Uh, it's a very funny podcast, the Todd Glass Show. It can be found at Nerdist.com. Please welcome Todd Glass. From the beautiful Las Cienegas Strip. Mm-hmm. Hi, it's a Black Horse Motors. Hi, it's Barry Katz there. It's the Todd Glass Show. Oh, Barry Katz is here, everybody. You know, let's applaud. Like, all right. Let's do it right. We don't give like a half-baked applause. We go all the way. Can't believe it. I haven't heard this kind of applause in a long time. Show a little respect. Come on, the man hasn't, you know, spotted <laughs> one person you could tell they're talented if he had one lucky client. But you don't spot all these people if you don't fucking know something. He's not a one-hit wonder, you motherfuckers. All right. What an honor. And we was. fade out. Now, Barry, I'm, I'm, I'm already sweating. Um, I might have to take this sweater off. It's good to have you Do you have here. those armpit pads that, I don't. Uh, that the, the female comics wear? Do they use that? Oh, you mean just to un- – to, do you have clients that do that? Yeah, female and male clients. They put those things under their arms no. to stop them from sweating. Because you know what? I found if you They're put – They're like baby diapers. <laughs> I found if you put something under your arm, you're going to sweat other places. So, like, for me, I'll sweat more out of my chest. But I sweat everywhere. I'm like Robin Williams, but I, you know, I try to keep it. That's why I only wear clubs. I have a very dis- uh, a, a certain way that I book myself. I won't go to, like, boiling hot places unless it's a club that has unbelievable air conditioning. Like well, a bo- you look really cool and collected. You look like you're wearing makeup. You look like you're really? camera ready here. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you. God, Barry's really I'm getting on my good gonna side. I'm going to take my coat off because I'm sweating because you look so good. Well, we usually... <laughs> We usually make jingles for everybody, and I thought, I should make Barry a jingle. So we'll start with that, and then, uh, you know, there might be even a little piece of it. Well, let's just, uh, let's play what we made for him. Yeah. Uh, You can play it. Oh, put your head, okay, just for this, then you won't have to. Okay, go ahead. Our guest is Barry Katz. Yeah, Barry Katz is on the show tonight. Barry Katz is on the Todd Glass show tonight. I like it. I asked him to make this last night. He went long, but I loved it. I love it. <laughs> Barry Katz. Barry Katz is on the show tonight. Industry standards. Is it industry standard or industry standards? Industry standard. Industry standard. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. You know what? I'm gonna... That was awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You're welcome. That was incredible. It's like almost like a bad phone sex operator singing a jazz <laughs> song. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> it, the... Barry, Barry. 
<laughs> so uh, they, they say Aristotle on the drums. Is I was wondering what Aristotle is here, and now I know he's a drummer. Well, he does the soundboard. It's a here's what happened. All the drums used to be over in the corner. Then I found out Aristotle played drums. I'm like, oh, we got to set some drums up right next to him. So. That wasn't the kind of audition he did for you when you found that he could play drums. Wasn't <laughs> no, he he can play like a like well. I figured realize not tonight, motherfucker. But... Well, you know what? Play play. Uh, what's what's something he plays like uh, like Disco Inferno? Let and then we and then I I don't want to get too involved with this, but like if this is it, it probably isn't on there. It doesn't. We don't need to see him. Go nuts That's on the Jake, drums. the wizard on the board. Yes, right? Jake is on the board. The listeners know that most of them. Well, if they don't, Aristotle is at the board. Um, young Jake is at the soundboard, and Barry Katz is here. Now, Barry, we've been doing something on the show, and then I, and then I have a few questions I want to ask you. But like when I grew up, uh, when I lived at, when I moved to Los Angeles, I was twenty three, and I lived with a family, and uh, they had their family do something every night. Their kids and I would join in, even though I was twenty three, and I felt like I was an adult. I was like looking back, I was a kid, but they had kids that were like eighteen, seventeen, and I lived because I was friendly with their daughter back in Philadelphia, and they used to say at dinner every kid had to say a nice thing that happened to them that day. And it was always like a big deal. They'd be like, nothing nice happened. They're like, the mom and dad would be like, it could be the littlest thing. Carolyn uh, and Randy Jones. So it could be like, he said, I took, got a good nap yesterday. Just appreciating the simple little thing. Did give one thing today that you would say, something nice that happened. Well, I, I think that you're going to be surprised by this. But the way I was greeted here today by Jake and you and, and the love that I felt when I came here and the jingle and everything, it's like I... I really am humbled by it. I really because I came here, and because you're you're the kind of guy that I've always. Uh, I know this is hard for you to believe, but I've always had a lot of love for you. And we, but we like sort of two ships that sort of always pass in the night, and we never really hung out. We never really spent that much time together, and we were sort of in opposite arenas and things. So I. I often thought if I came here, you would maybe come after me or do some roasting of me or do no, something. No, you know what? We, and, I, and so I come here, and it's all love. So my answer is this is actually the highlight of probably my month or, or so because uh, it's really uh, – I really have felt great with what you presented to me so far. Now it could all go downhill. No, <laughs> no. Well, I've got a beer in my hand. I, I, when's the last time I drank a beer? This is crazy. Well, that's very kind. Did you find parking outside easy? Yes, I did. I'm next to a Ferrari, which is another story I'll tell you. When I, I used to have one of those well, I remember Knight you, Rider Ferraris there. Did, did you used to – obviously, when you would come into town a long time ago – uh, you lived in New York, but when you were in town for a few days, sometimes Jay Moore had this big house in the hills next to where I live with Dave Rath and Brian Hussein. Do, do I remember you backing it up the driveway sometimes? I've backed it up the driveway. I've done a lot of things. I, can I, do you mind if I tell the story about the Ferrari? No, but I remember you having that thing, and I remember that's a distinct engine sound when you're in the house. Like, that's not a car pulling into the driveway that you ever that I ever owned. I heard, like, it was this, this boom, boom. You weren't revving it, but it just it made this no, ferocious couldn't, noise. you couldn't help but it made a noise and mm. I don't you know obviously your your audience knows where you are but there might me, be some first time listeners. for me coming here it's just uh, for everybody or anybody who's new to this this show this black horse motors is like this extraordinary place where there's all these old Ferraris and these beautiful sports cars and Todd is upstairs upstairs on the second floor overlooking them in the soundproof area all glass and then overlooking these beautiful, uh, pristine cars, and then La Cienega, which is one of the most incredible streets 
in Hollywood. So it's like it's it's really spectacular. Of course, I have my back to all of that now, and I'm just That's facing. I chose my seat with a guest <laughs> list of Patton Oswalt and Judd Apatow up there, and literally, I should be wearing clown shoes uh, um, sitting. But I want to tell you about the Ferrari yes. story. So. I got this. Uh, you probably know this. I did this crazy thing one time in Montreal where I, I, I sort of created new faces. Where I brought, uh, I believe, eighteen comedians up to Montreal. Do you to, remember what year this is? This is about nineteen ninety four. I couldn't, mm-hmm. didn't get anybody in Montreal, and I was a little upset. And I made a call to the Comedy Nest and the Comedy Works first, and uh, Jimbo wouldn't do anything with me, the comedy club owner. But this guy at the Comedy Nest. His name was Ernie Butler, who's since passed away, not even knowing me, agreed. He said, I'll give you the club Friday, Saturday, and Sunday during the festival. It's all yours. All the talent you put on is yours. Just fill the room. And back then, there's no email or anything like that. So I asked Chappelle and Brewer and Wanda Sykes and Keith Robinson and Daryl Hammond and just all these amazing, Tracy Morgan, all these amazing people. And I have like a... um, Six people each night um, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I invite all the industry to come. And I'm faxing people all night long. Because back then, all I had a fax machine, and you had to do it manually. That's crazy. I put out full-page ads in The Hollywood Reporter and Variety. I spent. And that was my- the start? I want to make sure I'm fine. That was the start of New Faces? Yeah, I spent all my money doing this because I was pissed off that they didn't pick any of my artists to go. And I couldn't believe it that they didn't do that. And I called Bruce Hills from Montreal. I said, well, you, you know, you don't mind if I do this? And he said, no, I don't mind because I, I didn't, hadn't done anything. You know, what, what had I done? And so he wasn't worried about me. So cut to 250 industry people come to this event. I get five development deals. I'm literally – I have meetings in L.A. for uh, development for Brewer and all these people. I, have, I only have one – I'm only one person. So literally I have to schedule four-hour meetings at NBC with like 10 people, and they're meeting one after the other, and it was this crazy thing. And did you not manage anybody at that time? Who did you manage at that time? No, I managed all the people I mentioned at the time and and many more who were on the list who were doing this thing that were were. That was a stupid question. No, no, it's not stupid. Then I realized I wasn't. I've done a lot of things for people who I don't represent. I mean, you know, like – like you know, me, like last, last comic stand. I know. We'll talk instance. about that. I mean, it's yeah. So uh, I'm sorry to ramble here, but no, you're fine. So I so I do this thing, and we get five development deals for five different comedians. No one in Montreal that year got a development deal. I got five from my showcase. I get a call from Bruce Hills first. He says, "Listen, Barry, I'm flying to L.A. I need to meet with you." I said, "No problem." He flies to L.A. Be careful with the mic. Sorry. And he sits down <laughs> with me at a dinner, and he says, "Barry, I thank you for meeting with me." I said, "No problem. I, you know, it's great to see." You. He said, "Listen, um, you can never do that again. You got to promise me you will never do that again." I said, well, you told me that I could do it, and I did. I, I know Barry, but you can never do that again. And But, you know, I will always take care of you. If you need something, you need somebody on, always come to me. And if it's something you need, but you can never do that again. So, And real quick, are you guys on good terms now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, why could you never do it again? Like, he said, okay. Did he acknowledge it? I know I said, okay, but, or... He was just he just didn't want something like that to happen again where somebody brought their own festival to a festival. And so that week 
simultaneously, I get a call from uh, Dean Valentine and Gene Blythe at Disney saying, Barry, we saw what you did out there. Uh, we want to do an overall deal with you to executive produce shows. We'll give you your own office space in the penthouse of the building uh, next to the lot. And I hired this lawyer, Debbie Klein, who represented Jim Carrey at the time to do the deal. And I'll never forget, she called me up and she told me about this four-year executive producer deal where I got all my office space, my assistants paid for, like everything, expenses, the whole deal. And she told me this is where we're at, Barry. And I was like, I, I, I can't believe I only have to pay you 5%. And she <laughs> laughed and she says, well, you can pay me more if you want to. <laughs> and so I, I, I go up to the offices for the first time. It's this beautiful corner. It's like a quarter of the floor. It's like insane. And I have this office in the corner on the penthouse with this jagged glass overlooking the entire city of Burbank and beyond. I sit down at my desk for the first time. I put my feet up. I can't fucking believe it because I'm, you know, I'm this schlub from Longmeadow, Massachusetts. I've got nothing. And, and I open the drawer. And in the drawer are like a 100 headshots of Sinbad. <laughs> and I'm like, I pull out these shots. I'm like, and I walk around to somebody on the floor who's. Been the, I said, what? What are these Sinbad things? Oh, Sinbad had the office there before you. They just kicked them out. And so I'm there. I go back to my desk. I throw out the things, and I'm against the glass window, as most of us are sometimes. We have Sinbad on the phone right now. There you go. When we're dreaming. You motherfucker! You throw out my pictures. <laughs> when we're. <laughs> I don't think he'd want those pictures. Um, it's the one with the white streak, and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and so, and so, you, you know, you're against the glass window, and sometimes you look out a lot of times, and you dream. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I can't fucking believe that this is happening to me. I, I mean, I this, I have a stupid question because yes. I have to let go if it, it doesn't come back around. And believe me, I have dyslexia. I have a. a is this did this start with something to do with the Ferrari? Yes, it and does. This is where it's coming to oh, right now. Oh, see, I'm glad. Because you know what? If, if if it didn't, if you went, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, I switched topics, then I'm like waiting. No, like, no. It's all good, but I'm like, okay, here comes the Ferrari. Here comes okay. the Ferrari. So I'm up against the glass. I look down, and there's one of those little tiny, like, places that sells cars. It's like, you know, a little, you know, thousand square foot place that like sells. Like right across the street. Yeah, maybe it sells eight to ten cars. And I'm looking down, and there's a black on black Ferrari, like Knight Rider, the kid thing. Do you remember what year it was? What year of the Ferrari? Yeah, it was in 1980. So I walk down. It's my first day. I know what money I'm going to make on this deal, and I know where I'm at. And I'm, like, renting a Miata at the time, so I got nothing. (laughs) I walk on the lot. The sign on the car says 24999. I'm like, fuck, I can get a Ferrari for $25,000. And no one knows whether it's that price or 100000 right? That's my guess. <laughs> no, I don't know. That was my whole thought. Right. I was like, perception is reality, hopefully. And so I look at this thing. I go talk to the guy, and he says, listen, I'll finance it. Just put $5,000 down, and I'll finance it. You know, $400 a month for four years, it's yours. I said, fuck it. Great. I signed over. I never driven a Ferrari before. I never had I didn't have the stick shift or anything like that. So I buy the car right there on the lot and I'm all excited. He says, I'll take care of the paperwork. That night, okay, I drive it to the laugh factory. 
I pull up to the lab back with my car. Okay. It's a good one. First time with this black-on-black Ferrari. I have the keys. I'm about to hand them to the valet. Jay Moore walks out, says, get the fuck out of here, grabs the keys from me, goes in the car, closes door, starts it up, and drives off. And he doesn't come back. He doesn't <laughs> He doesn't come back. Are you mad? There's you, no uh, cell phones there. I can't get a hold of him. I don't know where he is. So I'm stranded at the lab factory. And uh, he doesn't come back at all. He just takes my car. And finally, I get a hold of him like at maybe 2 in the morning somewhere. And he's like, okay, you can meet me here and get your car back. Were you mad? Because those stories are funny later. At the time, <laughs> I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, Jay, come on. I, I wasn't mad because I realized how stupid it was to get the Ferrari and do that. And it, it just always, something always went wrong. And, and I remember a roast that Jeff Ross did of me on my 40th birthday. And I hope I get this right. He said, uh, in 1980, Barry Katz had a dream. And uh, he had a dream. Wait, let me let's just think. Let's, yeah, in 1980, Barry Katz had a dream. And that was to own a black on black. Ferrari. And finally, his dream came true. He bought a 1980 Ferrari <laughs> in 2000. <laughs> and so that was his that was his like thing and he always shit on me about it and, and it always broke down and every and ironically with Jeff Ross, just to tell you one other thing. The most important meeting I ever had in my life at at the time up to this point in when I had this Ferrari in the 90s was a meeting with Fred Silverman, who's a legendary uh, television producer, uh, you know, ran NBC. He's like the, like a god, like a deity in Hollywood. And he wanted to develop a show with Jeff Ross, and he wanted us to meet him at the Bel Air Country Club. And I was saying, Jeff, you know, get there early, do everything, whatever. And again, no cell phones back then. So I'm driving the Ferrari down Pico, about to take the turn to Bel Air. I go over a pothole. The car just dies in the middle of the road, smoke going everywhere, and it's like turned a weird way. The police are there, and I have no way to call anybody, and I miss the meeting with Jeff Ross and Fred Silverman. And you have – that's so funny. Whenever you tell a story that involves no cell phone, you're like, yeah, that's right. What would you fucking – you could go borrow a phone maybe and call the hotel? Yeah, so I'll never forget that. So Jeff, so so I call Fred Silverman when I get back to the office, and the first call I make, and uh, you know, to apologize, and you know, I get on the phone. I'm like, "Hi, Fred. I am. I just want to let you know I'm so sorry." He's like, "You motherfucker, you cocksucker! You don't fucking not show up to a meeting with Fred Silverman. I'm Fred fucking Silverman. You're unprofessional, and I will never work with you again." Hung up on me, and you went. Did you ever? Did he ever calm down and call you a day later? No. Well, what did you do back then? Like, you know, I'm believe me, I'm very big into punctuality and everything. But, but not that we want to talk about this forever. But now, 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 I've got my. It's got my interest. Like, what would have been a different way you could have handled that? Could you? Could you have gotten into a cab and gotten I think there? In, in hindsight, I could have. Um, I could have pushed the car over to the side, put a note on it, and taken a cab there. I could have. Had the policeman call the well, he's Bel-Air. right then. You were you were wrong. So I I'm, I've been wrong many. many I got times one more question life. about the car, and then you I only w- have one question. No, no, I have a lot. Well, we hope that'll. Um, 
that was a long time ago, and I want to know if you're like, we talk about all those cars down there. We go, which car would you drive? Not appreciate, because there's a lot of cars I would appreciate down there. You know, we're talking about in this where we're at in the studio. There's Jaguars. There's, like, old Testarossas. There's an Ant. But the car, we're in, we're in the type of a business. And tell, be honest, it's a weird. It feels like I may be cornering you if you feel differently than me. But I think the reason I would be... Some cars you have a you have a uh, what do you drive now? You have like a Tahoe, I have a, high, a hybrid Escalade. I actually right. had to uh, get it. It was like one out of two hundred and fifty miles. It's hard to get those. So to me, that's a car that it's like you can pull up. It's it's understated. It, everyone knows it's a cool car, and it's got, and they and it, we, I know it's expensive, but it's understated because I feel like in this business you're pulling up. A lot of times in the situations where, like, if, you, if you're in the corporate world and you're pulling up and everyone you hang out with is as rich as you in, the corporate, in some corporate world, in this business, you might pull up to the improv and you have friends that, you know, that they haven't made it like you. So I would be always embarrassed to pull up in a, in a, you know, a $200,000 car. I, I, so I would go with what you have. I would go with, like, you know, an SUV or something. Now would you pull up in a Ferrari, too, like the improv, or would that be too much for you now? I don't think I would because I think that uh – I realize now that that's just, you know, I was trying to create some kind of perception that I didn't have back then, and I still don't have now. And the hybrid Escalade that I got, you know, the engine just blew, so uh, uh, karma uh, has gotten back to me. Uh, So I don't know. I mean, I love driving a Ferrari when I had it. It was fun. And uh, let's face it, if you uh, are driving uh, around in a car like a Ferrari and uh, you can't get any action, you might as well hang up your dick and retire. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because it's like it. So, so that's why I don't do it because I have no game whatsoever. Well, I, I remember you living next – no, you didn't live next door. When you were in town, sometimes you would stay at Jay's house. Now, we have a, we have a great history there. Can I talk about how I'm I first met you? I'm curious what you remember. Yes, yes. And hold These on. are the things I remember, and you're probably going to edit this out because there's a lot of uh, incredible stuff I remember oh, about Jesus, you. Oh, Jesus. I'm very curious now. Um, so go ahead. <laughs> Well, that house had a lot of history. I believe it was Willow Glen, and uh, which is a, a street off of Laurel Canyon. And what's crazy about it is, it is on the uh, the first house that actually burned down was Houdini's uh, house. And I am uh, tied to Houdini because I produced a Houdini documentary. My uncle was the number one expert on Houdini in the world. He owned the water torture case, the milk can. And I own Houdini's will and testament, the only document that actually has both signatures, Eric Weiss and Harry Houdini. So that was number one thing. And then we had this beautiful house like up the hill. And Jay and I rented it, and and next to us was you, uh, Dave Rath, um, Brian Pussain for a Pusain, little while, and, and Alan Murray. Alan Murray, who's a wonderful, wonderful man and a great comedian. And, uh, and a lunatic. And a lunatic, but wonderful. <laughs> yes, he's Sweet a wonderful man. With, the, with the, one of the most beautiful women in the world that he has right now uh, as his wife. So uh, what well, do I know? I can't wait till you get to what I did. So I'm going to tell you. So this is the fascinating thing, and I don't know what your audience knows about you and what they don't know about you. So J- Dave Rath uh, lived there, and Dave Rath is a manager and uh, you know, literally smoked a bag of weed a day. He woke up at the crack of 12 and smoked a bag of weed that would make Chappelle look like it was a thumbnail of, uh, of weed. I mean, this guy, like, I don't know how he did it. He had those kind of eyes that were like literally like take Jim Brewer's eyes to the hundredth power. And he always had that look on him like he was high. Now, I never really partake, partook in, 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 in marijuana. 
I mean, I did it a few times when I represented Chappelle because you had to. You had to celebrate something. <laughs> and literally, I was, you know, even slower than I am now. But so we had, you had parties up there. We did have big parties. And I actually well, introduced Dave Rath to the girl that he went out with for like 15 years, Allison. Right. I introduced them. And we had I, big parties. J- uh, Dave worked for MTV for a while, so they were too cheap to have parties like it regular places so they would pay to have them at our house so it looked like we were like having these big parties but anyway yeah, we and, were and there were amazing parties that were there and there were amazing women and great uh people there and um we used to go over all the time and when we'd go over there uh, the first time i went over there i noticed that when i went up there there you know when you went in the front door there was a curtain right. in front of me before you went up the stairway and i ne- you know i wasn't nosy i never went behind the curtain never figured anything out and after the first party, I remember the next day, I was out on my terrace, and there was an area where I could sit that had bushes where the person next door could never see that I knew what was happening if somebody went on the street. And I'm just sitting there reading scripts, and all of a sudden, it's like you know, 8 in the morning, and I see this figure walking out onto the street, <laughs> his back to me. I know what you're going to And say. he's standing in front of the bushes. I'm like wondering, what the fuck is he doing? All of a sudden, I hear this, this, the sound of pee <laughs> in the bushes. And I'm like, what the fuck? This guy turns around, walks back. It's Todd. I peed. Because- and so, and so, but I don't know anything at all. I don't know where he's coming from, what's going on. I just keep reading. A couple hours later, walks out again, this time in like a bathrobe. Not a bathrobe. I never wore a bathrobe. Uh, it's so funny with any story. I need every any detail like that. I just – I never wore a bathrobe. Well, but it was some kind of jacket or something because it was cold or whatever. Maybe it was a hoodie. Pete again. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And so I go around and I remember knocking on the door. And uh, you answered the door. And the curtain was open. My and room. I look in the curtain, and there's, like, a bed and a bureau. And that's, like, it. It's, like, literally, like, the size of, like, maybe six feet by nine feet. The bed looked like it touched three walls. Okay? It's like that old Henny Youngman joke when you put your the, – the hotel room is so small, you put the key in the door, you break the window. <laughs> and so he's he's living in a vestibule Here's, Under the stairs, can I, can like I a stop, troll. Can I stop you for one second? Here's why I live there. It was probably about ten feet by eight feet, and it was a room that no one used. At first, when it I wasn't moved, a room, it was a foyer. First of all, <laughs> would you like to make? Now, here's where we get. Would you like to make a thousand dollar bet that the room uh, was at least? Uh, it was probably third. I know because I bought a rug for it. So like in my head, I remember it was. I think it was like more like thirteen or fourteen feet by like nine or ten feet. I'm positive. I make you a $5,000 Foyer, Foyers can be 13 by 9. Yeah, that, that's what it was. So it Foyers was, can have that round table with the big Voss. On, so I remember Bob Nickman, this great joke he told, you know, you know when you're the, you ever this ever happened to you, you're in somebody's house and you break a vase and all of a sudden it becomes a Voss. But anyway, <laughs> but, but I just, I'm thinking about that. But, you know, Foyers can be huge so or small. Here, here's real quick. It was, it was a wasted room. We never used it. So first I had a room upstairs with everybody else. Then I was on the road so much, which leads back to you, because I'll tell you in a second why I took that room, and it does lead back to you. It's well, funny, of everything. you took it because it wasn't a lot of well, money. And you'd... It was, right, because I was on the road a lot, so I, I gave Brian Pussain my room. I went downstairs. They charged me two fifty a month, no utilities, no nothing. So I go, because I was, you got me a shit ton of colleges. Yes, I did. I did a show at NACA, and I wanted to get colleges, and you're like, you were and the I person. I didn't manage you. 
You didn't manage me. You're right, right. But for you, you got me sure. the you got me the uh, showcase for NACO. I did shows, and I got like I was on the road making. I didn't save one penny, but getting making like fifteen hundred dollars or fourteen hundred dollars a college show, doing sometimes seven in a week. And I was on the road, so I had that room. But I, so to pee, I had to go up a flight of stairs. So I would walk outside and pee. And that's one time I saw Jay Moore peeing, and I didn't really know him that well. And we're like, hey, hey. we're like, we met peeing. <laughs> um, but and then yeah, that that is a true story. That that I you would know walk. what's interesting is that- by the way, when someone sees you peeing outside, I realized it real quick. It, even in my home right now, which it's all one floor, I don't know why, but sometimes at night if I have to pee, like and it's dark and it's like I have friends over and it's like two in the morning, I'll walk out onto my front lawn. There's hedges everywhere, and I'll just pee outside. It's easier. I know that people either go, I know what he means well, you're in a weird way. Your territory, but <laughs> that too. <laughs> but but I didn't want to. Um, I, I it's easier. Do women do that? No, I don't. I don't think so. It's okay. probably not as easy. But I was thinking, if someone sees me peeing like the neighbor. It doesn't look like I'm a sane person. Like, and maybe you go, well, you're not. Well, I think you can be sane and do something a little insane. But like, well, I realize there's a few more things that I have to share that you did that weren't sane. So, was it anything to do with the cop? <laughs> maybe. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so that story, that's not that bad. So, that's the. Oh, so can I just say one more thing? Yeah, well, so, just, well, let's just just put a pin on it because for those of you, I won't remember. Hold on. Those, okay, real quick. On. So when you walked into that room, you it was the foyer that was a gigantic foyer wasted. So I went and had like tarps I bought from Home Depot. Like paint tarps, and I made a wall so when you walked in, there now was like a three foot by five foot foyer. I shortened it, and then you walked up the stairs, and the whole house was upstairs. So people went up one flight, and then they went up another flight. So I was downstairs, and I just created this wall out of old paint tarps, and then behind it, I lived. So that's uh, okay. So I don't know why I needed to. Like people are going, oh, he was doing well. <laughs> well, but this was interesting, uh, and what you told me about this space here, which is beautiful. What's fascinating about people, which you don't realize until you really analyze it, is the patterns. And this space is just a glorified, gorgeous version of what you're talking about in the house. These things gravitate to you. And if you don't realize it, you should because... Well, you know what it is? I see spaces that are... I have a good eye for style in the sense of, like, I see a wasted space and I go, oh, I could do something up there. So maybe you're right. And that's your pattern because you look at this space and 20 years later, you're in this (laughs) beautiful, beautiful, like, four seasons of a space up here that's just gorgeous. But it wasn't when I moved in. But it is now, so thank you. But yet a vision. And just for the audience, going back to the colleges, because I think it's important for people to know who are young comedians uh, listening, the thing about the colleges that was weird uh, when I was involved, and I had three different college companies because I found a loophole where I could do it and I could submit all these people. New York Entertainment was the one? I had New York Entertainment. I had Boston Comedy. And I also had, oh, God, what was the other one? Remember the woman? How good's your memory? Who was the girl that sort of uh, dealt Nina, with me? Nina Brower, Linda Sherman. Um, no, no, somebody else. Carrie Brazer. Yeah, there you go. I can't believe I can't remember the other thing, but I had three college uh, companies. <clears throat> and so when you're a young comic, even if you have like only seven minutes of time and you're trying to figure out what you're doing in your career, if you can put together an enormously wonderful three-minute set that can be edited down to three minutes, well, how the colleges work is uh, you submit these things through college agents, okay? And you have to fill out the paperwork, and there's about $700 in fees and things that you have to pay uh, when you get a convention, and beforehand, maybe about 200 So what happens is all these, these submissions come to the college convention, and there's about 10 different ones for NACA, which is the National Association 
of college activities because I think your audience will appreciate this. This is interesting. So what happens is there's all these categories, MC, uh, Club 750, which is a $750 act. There's a main stage act. And you price yourself and you figure out how much your price would be for one show, for two shows in three days, and on, three shows quick. in five days, and five shows in seven days. Right. And real quick, all these, uh, for the people listening, would be less to block book it. Right. There's colleges. There's students coming from every school. Some students have a huge budget. Some don't have budget, so, any budget. But they're booking comedians. They're booking bands. They're booking DJs. Yeah, they're DJs. doing everything. And they're, and they're watching these comedians. So what happens is, so for Todd, we submitted him. And then, so the next step was, is they, all these committee members, there might be one representative of each of 10 schools. And they'd be in a room and they'd have their television and all day long, maybe for a weekend, they'd put in tapes. The rule was they put in for one minute, one minute first, and then they take it out. And how many like this person, how many don't? Goes in one pile as another. After they get done with that, okay, let's put it in again at that point. Put it in again, they watch the next minute. How many like it, how many don't? And then they get down the thing and they put the rest of it in the third minute and they do it. Some conventions did two minutes and then a one-minute thing. So what has to happen if you're a comic, if you can put three minutes together that's extraordinary. Like if, you got, if you're a comic and you have like one letterman, where you killed, or, or even one premium blend where you absolutely annihilated and you can edit it together like it looks like a seamless thing with no jump cuts where you put the audience in. You can get one of these conventions. And then you go to the convention, you only have to do 20 minutes at the convention. If you do 20 minutes in one second, they shut off your microphone. So you can do 18 minutes if you want, or 16 or 17, no one's going to know. And if you can put together that set in front of these kids who are wired and want to laugh, and you crush, you can get like 100 colleges. Yeah. Like, for instance, you look at, um, there's a young comic this past year, uh, Melissa Villasenor. She probably, she probably had done 300 sets, maybe at the most in her life. Maybe she'd done 100 but she had this great two-minute set from America's Got Talent where she just got a standing ovation. It was amazing. And she did impressions. And she got the convention. She got over 100, maybe 125 college gigs. She didn't have an hour of material that they were requesting on the road, but she had to figure out how to get an hour by the time she did it. A lot of crowd work. <laughs> maybe a lot of crowd work. So it's the same for you. When you got the college conventions, I mean, let's face it, how much, how much A material did you have before you well, went Well, that's the- a great question. And, and also, uh, I remember with the tape, now that you mentioned, which I forgot about, I had submitted to NACA. Yeah, you, can you get... Where do I go? I'll get it if No, you no, want. no, it's okay. You know I, what? I, he's got me... Make, it, make a cut here, and then we'll grab a beer. I'm sorry, I can't, no, this is I can't you believe know what? I'm drinking beer. It lets me uh, look at this real quick. Oh, all right. We just took a little break there. So you heard a little music, and then we're back. And so he was asking me about when I started doing my colleges, uh, how much time did I have? Well, let me backtrack a little. Um, I wasn't getting any 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 um, colleges because I my tape. I was just not even getting submitted. And I remember I watching re- what I re- you did. I, I you, did, did uh, you didn't luck out. You made – I remember it specifically. I loved editing those tapes. And, and you, was, you knew what you were fucking doing. And I remember your tape. It was like an MTV, like half-hour comedy hour in the beginning MTV days. And you had this great bit, I'll never forget, that was a killer – 
where you turned into your dad. You said your dad you were smoking yeah. a cigarette. It was so incredible. And and what's odd about it is that if you were to do a bit like that today and I were to submit that in the colleges, yeah. you would never get selected. I know. I did that smoking bit till I couldn't till no one in the audience had a cigarette. One college, I got a piece of chalk. I was like, they literally, I said, I did it. Smoke like my dad's face hurts. But so you submitted me, but you made a little, you made some, like you said, clean edits. It didn't look like, wait, this guy doesn't even have three minutes. He made an edit. You couldn't tell there was an edit. No. And you submitted it. I got a lot of colleges. I didn't, like, hey, look, until you just said it, you forget everyone's going through that. I didn't have an hour. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? And then you get there, and then sometimes there's 300 people, sometimes there's 30. Um, I was very aggressive in taking control of the situation back then. I remember I would get there early. I would have them turn the lights down. These people entered the room because you can't enter a room that holds 400 people and have 30. It's going to seem. Well, that's the thing. If you are a comedian, you should know this is that if you're listening, is that one of the biggest things that the, a lot of artists think is that they can just show up like five minutes before a show and just like go on and do whatever they want to do. And, and they think they don't have to prepare. And, and like when you take somebody like, a Chappelle, for instance, well, yeah, you know, there's certain guys who are geniuses and they just literally can just walk on and do an amazing set that's like groundbreaking and there's no preparation or anything. But for most of us, you have to prepare and you have to be in a situation where you get there early, you assess everything, you have everything ready. So you have more lottery balls in the hopper to be able to figure out how to win. And for you at the time, and I hope you don't take offense to this, is that I don't think that you believed that you were the most talented comedian out there. But you knew that you were a guy who, if given the right preparation, the right time, you could pick off a more talented comedian than you. And that's what you did many times. Well, I didn't I, – I, I was a late bloomer when it came to comedy. Like I say, you know, it, it, there's a difference between being Kanye West and saying you're a genius. Uh, and then there's an in-between, and that would be to have some, some security once in a while. Um, I, I was a late bloomer, and those colleges were part of me developing because – when there were little crowds, it's when I started to become a better comic. I would uh, not talk to the crowd what I mean, like, uh, what do you do, and then make fun of somebody. That's a generic shit that anybody could do. But I would have genuine conversations. It wasn't to just go after the first thing that came out of their mouth to insult them. And it would lead to material. And, and those colleges, I never went to college. You know, I flunked out of high school. So, like, when I did those colleges, if I had a college to do and you, you the, like, let's say Carrie booked me on a college on Friday, then I didn't have to be to a college on Tuesday, I figured out a long time ago, stay at the one where you just did a show because everyone knows you. And then, That's right. So I would stay there. I'd eat in the cafeteria. Um, I, I, and I would just have the – it was I, – I loved it. I loved every college show. I am very bad with a map, so I couldn't drive. Like, you know how you would book, book us on a show, and then if the college was close, you'd fly into one city, do six colleges in yeah. your rented car, and then you'd fly out of another and city. Again, this is before Google Maps or your right. cell phone or MapQuest or anything like that. So I never uh, rented a car. All you I had the Rand McNally map, which uh, they sort of... Uh, the Thomas Guide, basically. But I never did it. They sort of uh, went the way of Howard Johnson's, the Rand McNally <laughs> company. <laughs> Howard Johnson's. Um, I never did it. What I would do was... And by the way, sometimes I had to give more money, but usually they didn't mind driving you to the next school because you just did comedy at their school and you were fun to hang out with. Once in a while, I would have to pay. Usually, if I said $100... Anybody, any college student would drive me. Once in a blue moon, I had to spend like two fifty, and that's how I got school to school. Last minute, no prep, because I was not renting a car because I couldn't, I couldn't follow a map or anything to get to the next school. But 
Anyway, but yeah, those colleges were, they, they uh, certainly, I did a lot of them and it was a lot of fun. Okay, here's what I want to ask you. Um, we are going to jump ahead here because, you know, it gets, it's just the time. Isn't that crazy? It doesn't matter. I got all the time in the world for you. We have another show, but we're good. We can go, we can go um, over. Um, I like the idea of your show. I've never heard your show, but I genuinely have heard a lot of people saying that they like it. People that I respect are like, oh, it's a great show. You got to listen to it. And what I like about that is that, you know, I always say you don't need uh, if there's comedians that are teaching courses in comedies uh, in certain cities. Well, I'm like, you know what? If you're going to take a course, eh, I know a guy in Philadelphia. It's pretty good. He he really is. He, but they they luck out. If it t- if it gets your feet wet and you take a course, but eventually, all you got to do is listen. You know, you love talking about this, and then you bring guests on. So all comedians have to do, hey, they might not agree with everything that you say. I'm probably not going to agree with everything you say, but there's something to fucking learn. So you just listen to your show, and we don't interview people that you interview. You know, so they get it from – Nobody does. No, I'll talk about comedy, and there's something to learn from this show, and there's something – but there's something completely different to learn from industry standard. And um, So who are some of the guests that you have had on so far? Well, you know, this is the thing. When I first, I wanted to do it a couple of years ago, but I was, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I was thinking about what other people would think. And I was concerned that people would think that I was doing something that was weird or crazy or that would uh, take away whatever cred or if I had any cred or whatever it was. And I was always concerned about that. But then... When I went back to doing uh, business on my own and have my own office again, I didn't have to answer to anybody, and so then I realized I had to get going with it. And uh, and you know, I did like um, Jay Moore had me on his first podcast. I don't know why, because it was a celebrity-driven podcast. And I told him, I Jay, this is, I'm not the guest for you. This you need somebody else and. He had me do it, and then his producers and him called me and said that 400,000 people had listened to that episode. And they weren't listening for me. They were listening for him. And he wasn't into social networking. The guy, Jay Moore, still does not even own a printer in his house. He can't print a script. He doesn't know. He, he's technologically not a social network person, never has been. And this is before the radio show. But for some reason, people came, and it was the number one podcast in the world, not just in comedy, in the world that week. And so that was crazy. So then he invited me back for the third episode, and like 300,000 people listened to that one. And so then he just kept having me on, like, and, and we'd talk about things, that I would take him to task because I never – I've managed him for 24, 25 years, and I never – I have a relationship with him where I can go toe-to-toe with him and call him on anything. And it's a real honest thing, but he can also call me on my stuff as well. And so after 10 episodes, one and a half million people had listened to these things. And, that, and what did you guys talk about mostly? Did you talk about like why certain people make it and other people don't? And, yeah, and, just and, and why he does things that hurt him and why uh, other things don't hurt him, the things that he does about the business that... Are, I don't think are proper the things that other people do. How to make it? Mo- most can I, can I interject real quick? I'm curious to see if you do agree with this. And I, by the way, if I was Jim Carrey or Will Farrell, I couldn't say this because with their careers, it would look self self promoting. But like, it's I'm I'm a I took it's taken me a little more time than other people. Uh, but in the meantime, I decided to become a better stand up comedian instead of getting bitter. I get jealous, but I don't. I try to turn it into motivation instead of bitterness. Don't you think everybody? Because someone asked me that when knew I was going to have you. To 
do today to ask why come this comedian made it and this – I'm not going to mention who and who didn't. Don't you think everybody's career, including mine, it's, it's, there's a reason? No, that's the whole part of the podcast, and that's the whole part of what I talk about. So I when, you, when I say there's a reason, what do you think that means that you're saying, no, there's not? I mean, it's, it's no one else's fault. There's not an evil entity out to get you. Like, you're, 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 I think every, There is one evil entity out to get who? you. Who? You. Well, you're, you're just I, saying it a different way than I'm saying it. Oh, I'm just saying Well, that. hold on, hold on. If there was three other people in this room, would they just say... Would they look at me and go, Todd, yes. You know, like when you're in therapy, it doesn't go on for an hour because the therapist goes, they interrupt. Then you have to trust the therapist that she's not out to get anybody. And maybe I'm wrong, but I would rather own it. Didn't you just sort of say what I said? Like, you're responsible. And you said, no, there is an evil entity out to get you. And I went, who? And you went, yourself. So we're agreeing. Why did you say who? Because I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say somebody like, uh, you know, I thought you were going to not say, not <laughs> somebody I, I, specifically. But I, but I want you to know, I want the audience to know, I'm not saying you, you specifically. Oh, I know, I know. You mean I'm you, saying you, the, the artists out there that are all out there, everyone has a part to everything that they do, and including me. Did you just and, not want to say that I might have been right and you said it a different way? No, you're always right. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I love to teach, but I also love to learn. That's why I asked. So. Yeah, so with you, like I, I always, I, I've always been fascinated uh, by you, and I always tried to understand. You know, I, I study comics. I'm like a savant. I don't know why, but why, and then you wonder why people make it and why they don't. And let's just, you just to take anybody. You can name anybody. Like, like for instance, I see Patton Oswalt's name on the on the um, on the board. So Patton, okay, has been doing comedy for probably I'm going to say 25 years. Okay, and the road wasn't always pretty. I mean, the guy uh, had a lot of shows in comedy clubs where no one was coming in. He couldn't get booked in a lot of places. He couldn't book an acting job many times in his career. Um, you know, his, his comedy was not revered as as much as we revered it because we looked at him. We said there's something really special there. But I always felt the reason why it was a longer trajectory for him was because he took the route of not being huggable and lovable. He, when you meet Patton Oswalt, he is a huggable and lovable guy. I mean, you just want to walk up to him and hug him. Anybody who knows him reveres and loves him. But when he walked on stage for many years, his comedy was anti-hug, anti-love. There was an angst to it. There was a, a harsher point of view to it. And when you're trying, I'm not saying he's trying, but when you're talking about the masses, which we are talking about, about, you know, I remember a comic, Barry Crimmins, when I, you know, he said, why don't you book me? I said, well, you know, like a lot of people tend to like this kind of comic comedy more. There's more audience for that person. He'd smoke a cigarette and be like... <sighs> Yeah, there was more audience for Hitler, too, Barry. You know what I mean? But So the mainstream, I don't want to talk about that like in that terms. I'm just talking about making it, per se. So Patton had this thing that he was doing the non-huggable and non-lovable lane. And you can point to the whole sphere of comedy. And you can take a 100% pie of all the comedians. And I can guarantee if you look at it, 99.9% of them that make it are huggable and lovable. And there are the 1% that aren't. The Dennis Leary's, the Patton Oswalt's, the Brian Pusains, the 
Uh, you know, there are people like that who created that lane and had the balls to go Louis for C.K. Louis C.K. had the David balls. David Cross? Yes. Who had the balls Seems to like go. Seems like there's more than 1%, though. No, no. Out of all the comics in the world, no, no. And, and Louis C.K., I do not put in uh, that lane. He is lovable, and he is a... He's always had that smile and that thing. He's been a little mm. bit more angst-ridden as he's gone forward, but you know. But David Cross, yes. So the point being is that so there were these people out there, but Patton, since the advent or whatever the craziness of the internet, it allows that Will Rogers philosophy. And for those of you who don't know this famous quote, which I didn't really know until I got into the business, he said, "If one percent of the people like you, you're going to be a star." And so the fact is, is that if there's 7 billion people in the world, you can take a lane that you want to take in this Internet-laden world like Patton, and you can find your lane, and you can go for it, and you can be proud that you stuck with it and hung with it. And, and, and if you do it long enough and do it well enough, you're going to find your audience, and they're going to come, and you're going to make a noise that's so loud that Hollywood has to listen. And it doesn't just mean it's Patton Oswalt. It's, it's Dane Cook, the exact opposite of Patton Oswalt. You make a noise so loud that Hollywood has to fucking pay attention. And that's what Patton did, and that's what Dane did, and that's what Louis doing, and that's what Kevin Hart is doing. So, so, um, it's, it's, it's just, and it's all different kinds of people. It doesn't have to be just one. There's In music... You know, there's people out there who love Barry Manilow, and there's people out there that love Nine Inch Nails, and and all in between. And it's the same with comedy. But comedians, they're too close. They can't see it. They're like, I always say this, they're like anorexics looking in a mirror and thinking they're fat. They don't really see what it is. And so for you, you've always been in this weird thing, and I think this is where I'm going with you and why I think it's been a more difficult path for you. You fight this internal battle. I'm not even going to talk about the personal battle because that's, you know, unless you want me to. But, I, I, you know, I can go there if you want me to. But I'll take the professional battle first. You fought the battle of trying to ride the fence between alternative acceptance and mainstream acceptance because you've always been the kind of guy who wanted people to love you. And you wanted everyone to love you. When you performed, you wanted to be that guy who performed and the comedians were in the back of the room and David Cross was laughing at you and David Coulier was laughing at you. You just loved that feeling and you wanted to know that the audience and you were fighting that battle and you didn't know which lane to take. And what's great about the podcast and what's happened to you in recent years in your personal life too, and, 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 and I point to that your your thoughts and how you handle your personal life and how you figured it all out and decided how to figure it out, that's when your whole professional life changed and your whole personal life changed and it opened up a whole new world. And that's when you became more famous, more successful, and people loved you more because professionally, in my humble opinion, you were living a little bit of a lie because you didn't know which way to go and personally you were living a little bit of a conflicted life too well and let me, so let me that, interject here basically from a distance you're you're pretty much i was so ready for you to be like no 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 that's not why you're right 
But my slant on it a little for me was. But you're 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 close. You're really fucking. I don't want to be. I don't want to be. I don't want to be right. Well, no, no. I I think it's admirable because you were you were watching from afar. You know, to me, you were watching from afar. But I'm embarrassed to say that I never called you or approached you and. And because well, you never asked me for, but but I, but I, I, you know, I would have loved to have. Well, let me let me say this. I did have moments along my career where where I did take that advice. I remember one time a comedian told me in Philadelphia. Um, you you know I I I forget his name, but uh, I think I, I I'm, I'm anyway. It doesn't matter. But uh, he, I was hanging out with him off stage, and he said, "You're funny off stage." He, and one night, and I didn't take it the wrong way. He goes, and I think that's what let me grow. He goes, "You're." He said it very endearingly. He goes, you're funny hanging out with you. He goes, what are you, what are you doing up there on stage? And I could have gotten offended, but I didn't. Because I, it was more important that I made him laugh. If I, I, you can't learn to be funny, but you can learn to fucking take it up to the stage. He was saying, you're funny. You're, you're not doing it up there. That was a start of me trying to do it. But when the comedy club scene sort of fell apart, not comedy, because my theory in that comedy will be around forever, just the oversaturation of it. The alternative scene in L.A. started. I, by the way, I know I'm going a little long here. I never call it the alternative. To me, it wasn't alternative comedy. It was an alternative venues. These cool venues where the audiences came in. And I tapped into that. And that's, to me, what was this, to sound like a a new born-again Christian, that was my savior. To start doing what made me tick. To start doing what you know bits and silly stuff that made me tick, and um, and then that I started to really enjoy that. But then, where you're totally right, then I was going on the road and trying to do something completely different. And I had two notebooks. I literally had two notebooks. But and then in the final thing, where I think you were also into an area, I used to not think you know being you know not honest about my uh, you know about being gay. Um, <laughs> it, no, because that's like you know, and I'm I'm not. I'm obviously well. I mean, it's not obvious. I'm not gay. Everybody probably thinks I am, but I'm not gay. But I, I think, and so I don't know what you're feeling. But I do know this: is that I have represented many, many artists, and I still represent many artists who are gay, who people who have not come out, and those who have come out. And there's this 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 horrible thing that this Ellen society, DeGeneres. Be honest, is she gay? And this, don't fucking lie. To me. <laughs> So this society, what it does to you is it just fucks you up So because you, you have this fear and, and this fear-based thing so you can't live your life the way you want to live it. And to live that kind of feeling, that's like living with ankle weights. That's like playing basketball with one hand tied behind your back. So you can't possibly – there is no – I will tell you this honestly and, and any artist listening right now. There is no artist who is working today who is a comedian, a musician, or whatever – who is gay and who is not admitted to the world that they're gay, who is as great an artist as they could possibly be. They're probably half the artists well, that you know, they thought you know they could be. You know why I agree with that? And by the way, for anybody listening that might not be dealing with it now, I always say the same thing. you got to do it when you're ready. And, the, and I'm never for someone to, to, to push them. I, you gotta do, everybody does it at the same time. Everybody, when you're ready. But um, – it's not that I want to go on stage now and talk about it. The, the, I don't. Some people do, and I think that's a great style to go. Oh, when I was younger, this and my parents knew because of that. I don't really. It's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's just it doesn't. It, it's not something that it, it comes out of me. I don't want to talk about that. 
So it didn't change me where now all my bits are about that. You know, like, oh, and here's what I knew. And the first girl I ever went out with, I didn't even know. It's not about that. I have no desire to talk about that. But where it freed me up, and I didn't think it would, was I used to not talk about things that were passionate to me because I was afraid it would make me look gay. Uh, I have a, I have an eye for, I like lighting a certain way. When I have a party, I have a certain way. When I invite people over for dinner and they're an hour early, I'm, what the fuck? Who shows up for dinner an hour early? But I wouldn't talk about any of that stuff. And I thought when I came out of the closet, uh, or busted out of the shed, as I like to say, because it sounds tougher, is that I would hide it more. Because then I didn't want to be the star. I didn't. I went, fuck it. You admitted that. Now just admit all the other shit. So it did free me up to not specifically talk about what it was like to grow up and all that, but just talk about shit that I'm passionate about. And it did. It did change a lot for me. So it yeah, was, it was mean, a good it, thing. It, you became like a... Uh... I mean, you, be, you grew like uh, like the beanstalk. But again, for a lot of comedians that are listening, they didn't go through this. So go, let's go more generic for a second. And I love to talk about this stuff. And I love, but but I think the basic thing to go back to what you said is, it, I told this to a neighbor of mine that teaches acting lessons, and he said he told his students, and they hated it. He goes, I love that they hated it. And what I said was, everybody's at in their career. Wherever you're at in your career is exactly where you belong. That doesn't mean certain people don't get lucky breaks. It doesn't matter. If, you're, if your neighbor wins the lottery and you didn't, you don't go, oh, my neighbor won the lottery. Okay, he won the lottery. You didn't, so that's not your path. So yeah. if you own where you're at, wherever you're at, then people are like, what? No, there's no evil force. So, Like one of the things that's true, like one of the podcasts I did uh, recently on Industry Standard, which was with Robert Morton, who was the executive producer of Letterman for 15 years, and and – and one of the things, the lessons that he learned was Letterman, you know, Letterman was and is the king. There's no disputing it. And at the time, you know, the guy's on the top of his game. He's got the 1230 show. He's the heir apparent to the Tonight Show. I mean, everybody knows that he's the king and he's the guy who deserves the Tonight Show. And he had, but he was number one. And he just sat back in his chair in New York and was like smoking a cigar and like, hey, you know, I'm number one. I'm. Yeah, I've got the show. Meanwhile, Leno, who, if you know Leno, is one of the nicest guys and the sweetest guys and, and literally, like, would never do anything uh, uh, illicit or crazy, is hiding in an electrical closet, peeing into a cup for four hours, waiting to listen to a board meeting at NBC. He's trying to do everything he can to figure out a way to get that gig because he's number two. So Letterman doesn't get the gig. But he's number one. So you can be the best. Wes Welker was the best receiver in football by 30 catches. New England Patriots, they, they, they squeezed him. They wouldn't even give him what he wanted. They offered him this lower deal, like half of the money that they offered him the year before. So he said, fuck it, he left. So being number one doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get what you want. You have to keep working when you're number one as hard as you would if you were number three. Without, with the, you can work, but with obviously, and it's you're, it's a no shit comment. But you, you don't want to try to be number so bad. Sometimes being number two, uh, if it means you know you're in, you're look Volkswagen you're, isn't the top, but they make a lot of money and they yeah. do really well. But that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about where you're, like you know, every comic who's listening to this show right now. You, you, you history is the example of everything. Right. Name me one comedian who has stayed on top. For I mean, on top, top, like the highest grossing, the number one guy. How long does it last? 
I got news for you, Louie and Kevin. It's not going to last that long. It can't. It's impossible. But if if that's not, let me let me interject here. You know, real quick. so you have to you have to figure out where you're at and what's going to happen and what other areas you're going to go into and what you're going to be happy with doing and how you're going to do it. Dane Cook, it was like a seven year run that was unfucking believable. I was there. I mean, I. But hold who, on. Let, let me so, interject here real quick, because I'll forget to ask this. Even though you might not be able to keep up those numbers, well, when you start at Madison Square Gardens, it's hard because then when you go down to work in 7,000-seat rooms, it looks like you're but, – but, but, but there's no defying that there have been comedians that maybe, maybe aren't drawing 5,000, but 20 years later are still making a nice living. You will always work. You will always make a great living. Dice will always make a great living. The guy sold out arenas for 12 years, the longest run of any perf- comedian out there. He did 12 years. He started in 88. He did his last uh, arena uh, at, uh, in 2000. So the point is is that you'll always work, and, and you're, tr- you're right. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. But as an artist, I always I think you it. can have a – don't you think, though, that you can have a little more st- – st- what's it called? St- stay around. Uh, you're staying around a little more than going from dice to like – Yeah, because if you – like I have all the confidence in the world that Louis C.K. is going to do great work. Brian Louis, Regan? Lu- like guys like that? Yeah, you might, yeah, and Brian Regan. I, I would love to talk about Brian Regan, but, but I want to talk about Louis for a second. I represented Louis for the first seven years of his career, and I always say this kind of to anybody who listened, like imagine this imaginary conversation if you're a comedian or any artist listening. Imagine this. I'm, I'm talking to Louis when he's 18, this is an imaginary conversation. I say, hey, Louie, how you doing, man? Listen, I got good news and bad news for you. He's like, great. What's, what's uh, the good news? The good news is you're going to have the top show on television. You're going to win two Emmy Awards. You're going to create specials that you're going to do on your own. You're going to make millions and millions of dollars. You're going to be one of the most respected guys out there. Everybody's going to be talking about your show will be the most watched. People will be revering you. Boy, Barry, that's great. What's the bad news? The bad news is it's going to happen 28 years from today. Okay, so this guy's been working for 28 fucking years on his craft. Louis C.K. never booked an acting job in his life that I know of. He cre- So he figured out, hey, I'm not going to get an acting gig by auditioning. No one's going to give me an acting gig. So I'm going to create one for myself because I know I can do this. And he created his own thing. He believed in himself. He was he- able to create that because in the mean – look, these are all guesses. You, everybody, I think, quietly thinks we understand the business and we have our theories in our head. And then when you – that's why I like talking to other people about it because you go – sometimes you stick to yours. Other times you go, oh, I never looked at it that way. But didn't Louie get to do that because in the meantime, instead just wouldn't be – well – and also, listeners should know that don't know that much about the business, even though Louis had the, the success he's had in the last few years. Even 15 years ago or 10 years ago, Louis was making a nice living working on Conan. And in the meantime, didn't he just get his stand-up to be better and better and better and better? Well, he was all, Louis was always about the stand-up. When I first represented him, he had one of those, comp- those early Mac computers that was like that beige box, the little beige box. I remember he had that. He had an apartment above the Village Gate on Bleecker Street in New York. And Louis was all about creating and always was about creating. He's, he, you know, 
I've known Louis my whole career. He was the first comedian I ever represented. He opened the Boston Comedy Club in New York in Greenwich Village. He was the first comic. Who was your on first? Stage. First comic. Who was your second? Second was Anthony Clark, who I still represent. Um, How's Anthony? He's good. It's a long conversation. I miss it's him It's a long the conversation, but the guy, you know, did all these sitcoms. He made millions and millions and millions of dollars. He owns like four huge houses, and it's like, you know, there comes a time when you just say, hey, you know, I'm not going to pound the pavement anymore. Who was your third? Do you mind? I like uh, Nick DiPaolo was the third, um, uh, I believe, uh, and uh, I'm just trying to think. No, Jay Moore, I'm sorry, was the third. Nick DiPaolo was the fourth. I got an, and I, I still work with Jay. I'm going to change. I'm going to. I'm very curious to hear what you say about this. And we won't. I don't want to name any comedian. But no, you can name anybody. I don't, I don't like to. I don't like to because it's to me. It's easier to keep it generic. And I'm curious of your slant on this. I'll tell you mine. Curious what yours is. Um, every everybody can't like every comedian. I get it. You can't be loved by everybody. But there are successful comedians that are respected by other comedians. You know, the, the financially success, like guys like Chappelle when he was making a lot of money. So he had mainstream success and also respected by a lot of his peers. Not, maybe not every one of his peers, but let's put it this way, a shit ton of his peers. Same thing with Louis C.K. Hey, there's probably some people that don't like him, but he has huge success and then a lot of respect by his peers. So whenever there's a comedian that is chastised in the community, and by the way, there's more than one. Everyone's going to the one. There are more than one that you manage, and there's 20 others out there that you had nothing to fucking do with. So no matter what you do, you cannot pinpoint because I'm thinking of maybe six or seven people. Here, here comes the close of my, my thing. So if someone said, well, who is successful that anybody admires, and you couldn't name any, well, then that would be like, well, that's the problem. You know, whenever anybody's successful, no one likes them. Well, that's not true. Do you think, I always think if there's a comedian that nobody respects, that could it just be that there's a reason? Like, where do they go in there in their house to say, it's this or it's that or it's this or it's that? Because maybe if they knew the truth... And I don't know if it's just bitter comedians because, like I said, there's a shit ton of comedians that are fucking doing so well financially and have the respect of their peers. Here it comes to the close. My brother is a teacher, and he said, look, he loves to learn from teachers and admire them. And there's a shit ton of his teachers at his school that he goes, oh, if I could soak in what they know. So the teachers that they make fun of, it's not because they're jealous. It's not because they're bitter. It's because they are legitimately bad teachers. And my, my brother knows that. He goes, I don't think I'm the best teacher in the world, but I care. So could it be that those comedians that had the rep for being bad, could it just be that it wasn't jealousy and that, no, you were, you were just bad? No, I mean, there's, there's always artists that can look in the mirror and say they're bad, but there's also artists that know that... When you speak negatively about people, well, what's the end game? What's the end game of an artist shitting on another artist? Well, I, I, I got to interject then because I don't want to be so bitter. Let me just I'll, – I'll go one more time and then I really want to shut up and listen. Um, uh, I don't want to be the com comedian or the teacher that just badmouths everybody. You know, I don't want to meet someone for the first time and go, fuck them, fuck them, fuck them. But there – but can maybe because you love the craft, like consider it teaching. Go to teaching instead. Think of my brother, loves that teacher, loves that teacher, learns from that teacher. Can he sit and make fun of a teacher that's just not – they're just not good? Can it just be your love for comedy that when you see somebody that's not not doing your thing? I know comedians, what they do isn't my thing. I don't waste a lot of energy on them, especially if they're nice people. 
Because I think a lot of the times when someone has a, 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 an act that no one likes and then they're a dick, their dickness hurts them more than their bad comedy. Because I can think of a lot of comedians, what they do isn't my thing, but you know what? I'm even happy for their success because they're nice and it's not my thing, but I really genuinely – so could it be that – why, why, are, why can you be successful like Brian Regan or Chris Rock or, or Louis C.K. Or, or whoever it is and also get the accolation of your peers? And then there's those comedians that don't. Like, is there, well, first of all, it couldn't you know, be fair. No, I want to a- answer that because okay. it's like I want to go back to, to Louis C.K. to answer this because, again, and I, I want to preface this because, uh, you know, sometimes you say things and it comes out of context or however it is. Um, I, I love Louis C.K. I, I love him as a person. He means the world to me. He's done, you know, he did things for me when I was going through a lot of tough times that I'll, I'll never forget as long as I live. But, you know, Louis C.K. single-handedly probably significantly helped to derail Dane Cook's uh, career and put him in a position that was in a very difficult position after he was in a very successful position. You know, it's very hard for artists to see a guy smiling on his album cover as he's walking off Madison Square Garden after two sell-off shows in one night for 39,000 people, making a gross of whatever, $1.5 in one night, and be happy for the guy doing the kind of jokes that they don't like but that the masses are going to see. Yet when Louis C.K. did SNL and the opening to SNL, if you watch the opening stand-up, He's having the time of his life, but he's doing some of the same things on stage during that opening that he shit on so many people who were doing the wrong things. And when I say so many people, maybe I mean right now just just Dane, you know, doing the sound effects, doing the things, bits that weren't really, didn't seem like comedy. Watch the SNL uh, 10-minute opening or whatever it is that he did. He was having a great time. He was enjoying himself. So when Dane hosted the premiere episode of SNL and having a great time and just doing what he wanted to do, shit on. Louis did it. He did what he wanted to do. He wasn't shit on. But you, you start doing the things that you realize why people were doing them because they were experiencing so much success and they had so much freedom but they how could do it. So for let me go back to go the ahead. bad. So is Dane Cook a bad comedian? And by the way, I got to jump in real quick. You noticed that I did say... No, you didn't say any names. I'm, yeah. I'm saying the names. Okay. Is Dane, was Dane Cook a bad comedian? Well, Dane Cook would sit here in this room and say, uh, are you as, if I asked him, are you as great a comedian as Chris Rock or Steve Martin? He would say, no, I'm not. He'd say, listen, Barry, I always wanted to do three things. I wanted to do a third silly... I wanted to do a third blue, and I wanted to do a third of bits, sort of like the atheist bit, where I really did something special, and and that I just wanted to to cross all paths, and that's what I want to do. And that's well, then what, what, I, what happens to those type of comedians where, like, again, some get to – it would be different if you went, yeah, all the comedians that other comedians like, they're dirt poor. They're just comedians, comedians. But as we know, there's comedians making a shit ton of money and also respected by their comedians. How come some managed and, – and Brian Regan's one of them. So it's I want to talk, like talk about Brian how, Regan. But that's so the, Brian hold on. Regan. Let, me, let me just go. Okay. How does that happen where some – you know, manage to make money and have the respect of their careers, and then some can't do that. How? What? What happens? Is there an answer to that? Yeah. Well, the first answer is you have to book significant acting jobs, and most comedians they don't. What do you mean uh, by that? 
significant acting jobs. Brian Regan is one of the most loved, respected comedians out there. There isn't one comedian I know that would ever say a disparaging word about Brian Regan. But why isn't Brian Regan a household name? Brian Regan isn't a household name because he worked hard on his stand-up. He did not work hard on the other muscle, the acting. He did not work hard on the other muscle, the writing and creating, like Louis C.K. He didn't work hard on those other avenues, but he worked hard on the stand-up. So he's done his, his 10,000 hours in stand-up, and it always works. But he has never booked a significant acting job, and therefore he's not a household name. Chris Rock, i never forget, Chris Rock, he was like a teenager. I was in New York. He's respected by other comedians. Yes. I was in New York, and um, he was like 19. He used to stand there with a pad. His first five minutes was uh, um, was Bill Cosby was a racist and Fat Albert was a racist cartoon. He never moved, but Mario Van Peebles saw something in him. Don't mention Mario Van Peebles in this room. I'm that sorry. Guy, no, I'm just kidding. And um, And he booked him in a movie called New Jack City. And if any of you out there have ever seen this movie... Chris Rock was a crack addict in the movie. It was his first role ever. And he was amazing. And I'll never forget this because I represented a guy named Charlie Barnett who was the greatest street performer of all time. Those of you old enough to remember, he was in a movie called DC Cab. He was the guy with the curlers in his hair. He played Noogie on Miami Vice. And he used to come into my office. And he was a public drug addict. And he came into my office on a date, like the the night, the day the movie opened, it was a matinee, and he came in, and he walked in my office, interrupted me, sat down, he said, Barry, I just saw Chris Rock in New Jack City. That guy played a crack addict better than I'm a crack addict, and I am a motherfucking crack addict. And so, and so that was the word on the street. This young kid went into this movie and fucking blew it up. And that garners respect when you can book a significant acting job. Ray Romano didn't become Ray Romano until he booked a significant acting job. Kevin James did not become Kevin fucking James three movies in a row doing over $100 million before he but, did but, King but of Queens. Here's what I'm, Joe Rogan did not become Joe Rogan until he booked news radio after Ray Romano was fired off of news radio. Todd Glass yeah. is not where he is supposed to be, in my opinion, because he has not booked significant acting jobs that have shown the world every week on television how brilliant he is. Well, what you just because said, you don't work on your acting let me, as let much me, as you work on the podcasting and the comedy. Let me explain. That's why I'm very excited to be a part of the the world we're in right now with, with social media because you're absolutely right. And that's why I'm not bitter. Again, do I get jealous? Yes, but I'm not bitter because I don't like going out on auditions. I don't do well. I don't want to even be told by people. Oh, but you don't work. Head. You don't work. I don't work it. at it, and I don't like to. And I got a lot happier when I stopped going out auditions and just put everything into my stand up. I was getting stomach aches going out for auditions. I don't do well. I don't. When they block you and they stop you, I get nervous. You know, you can put yourself head. on tape and email. But, it but in. you know what? 
There's also nothing wrong. You can do a hundred se- takes and have ninety nine that suck and have one great one and send it in. I know, but I hated it. As, but here's the good thing: as long as I'm not blaming someone else, at least I know it. At least it's not going. You don't have to leave here and go. Todd still doesn't realize. Even my manager said, "Todd, if you went out for some auditions, you, you, you'd, you'd, you'd get a stomachache on some. You'd leave some. You'd be horrible. But you'd get it's some. It's like stand up. I don't want to do it. You've done a th- you've done thousands of stand up. That's why you're great. You got to do thousands of auditions. You I gotta, hate it. You got to wake up every. If you're a comic out Ugh. there and you want to be an actor, and you know, just a second here, if you want to be an actor and you're a comic out there, why not get up every morning, get the fucking video camera out, get some scenes out, and you're put right. yourself on tape every day for three, four, or five well, hours before you do your stand up? Here's what I don't want anyone to, pr- because I do agree with you. The only reason I don't disagree, but you understand what I'm saying. You're right. And for anybody that goes, oh, I can't afford an acting class, get together with five people that can't afford acting classes and fucking do something. So I didn't do that because it's not what I wanted to do, and I had the stand-up, and it took me a little longer to – when I get my own venue – when I have my own project, like I did a pilot with Happy Madison a few about seven years ago, and now I have a show over at Comedy Central, which I just sold. My own work I'm good at when it's my own, but if it's somebody else directing me, I don't do well. Could I, could I have just done it and done it and gotten better? Yes, and I didn't. But once but you I'm get on okay television, with- that's what look, – look, let, let's take Aziz Ansari, okay? Those of you who are in New York and comedians and have Aziz's were sitting here, I mean, he was doing like one o'clock spots at the Comedy Cellar. This guy here, Jake Adams, I mean, gets up. I know. What I'm saying is Aziz was doing, you know, he, as a comic. Jake Adams, anybody out there that wants to book him for something, he's available. Very Barry Katz manages him. I love this guy, Jake <laughs> Adams. Um, so the thing is, is that he was going up, but he booked a significant acting job. His career fucking took off after that. Do you know anybody in the history of television or, or comedy that booked a significant acting job and their career went downhill? No. Obviously, that's a no. That's an obvious, you know, you know, not to be insulting, but like the yes, formula if you, if you, is there. The f- so why don't more comics understand that? Well, I'm all right if you take it a different route, if you own it, that it's going to take a little longer. For me, it did take a little longer. I just stopped. I didn't like having stomach aches every day, gone out for auditions. I didn't like the commercial auditions. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. It's all about control. This is the thing when you're a comedian. I don't like being bad at something. And there's no – by the way, it's I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses. The only difference between me and other people, and I do think it's very important for me to point out, I'm not sitting around – First of all, everything you're saying is, is obviously spot on. You've got to fucking do it. But I'm not blaming anybody that my career took a little longer. And there are a lot of people that do, that would sit across from you and go, oh, that's not true, because they don't want to hear it. They want to hear someone tell them that, yeah, you're right. There's an evil force out to get you. You've done everything right. And I'm saying, you're right. I didn't do it, but I own that it took me longer to get where I want to get. That's the difference, that I'm not around bitter. Your advice is right, and I didn't want to be bad at something, so I just took a different route, but I'm owning it. I think that's a big difference between a comedian and an actor that's blaming everybody but themselves. So I think for those of you who are starting with with comedy right now, it's like I think that's something you should be working on equal – there should be three parts to your work ethic. There should be the writing part to your work ethic. There should be the acting part to your work ethic, and there should be the stand-up part to your work ethic. And you should be preparing yourself as you go on. And when I do this industry standard podcast, that's what a lot of these things are all about. You know, when I'm I'm talking to these network presidents, you know, like Doug Herzog at Comedy Central or Chris Albrecht. Yeah, name, name some people. Doug Herzog. I, I want to hear. Doug Herzog, think... who's the president of Comedy Central. I, right. uh, uh, Chris Albrecht, who was the CEO of HBO and now the president of Stars. I had Steve Coonan. 
president of TNT and TBS. I've had Reggie Hudlin, who uh, produced Django Unchained and was the president of BET. I've got Ted Harbert coming up, who's the chairman of NBC Universal. I've got, you know, um, who else is coming on there? David Hill, who's the number two guy under Rupert Murdoch. I've had Eric Tannenbaum, who's the producer. Do you go to them or they come to you always? No, I'm I, I'm just I just curious. started the podcast like July 15th, so I, what was shocking to me is calling them up and actually them saying yes, because that's another thing I just want to share. Just because you're a comedian or an artist or a, or a musician or whatever that you think that you're the only one, I too look in the mirror and think like an anorexic, like I'm, I'm fat. I don't understand my place in the business. Even sitting here across from you, it's humbling being across from you because, again, I see Patton's name, Judd Apatow. You just had Zach uh, Galifianakis. No, Zach canceled last week. I'm well, very upset with whatever. him. Whatever. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm he'll not. come back on. But the point being is that, you know, who am I? You know, it's like I don't see I, – I know my place, but I don't really know my place. Well, let me tell you this because we do have to go in – god damn it. I wish we had three hours to talk because I feel like you just – it takes an hour and a half. There's, there are like three or four things I was so well, curious to honored, hear your slant I'd on. I'd be honored to come back anytime. But I always say this about you. you. You know, there's certain times I'll hear something you said. I go, what the fuck's Barry talking about? But my overall thing that I always say about you is that you don't see as many people uh, – have an eye for them. Yeah, you can spot one guy, especially when you're already big and they're all going to come to you. It had nothing to do with what you knew. But there's too many people at an early stage that you that, that you said that person has something. You can't luck out time and time and time and time again. So that's why I wanted to have you here. I would like to be able to talk longer because I feel like we just sort of like got things going and now we got to we got to wrap it up. But, but we, you'll come back. I would be so and I, honored to I won't come do back. two shows. I'm trying to do my regular show after this. So let me ask you two questions. Who's at the door? Do you mind going down there and seeing who it is? Okay. So, so you, you just played a jingle. <laughs> Which, by the way, that's so funny, that out of all jingles. And you played that by accident, right? Of course you did, because you wouldn't play it and then walk away. Um... Uh, my my interview skills like I'm gonna listen to this later and then I'll be like oh I should have you're I, a great interviewer uh, you're you're really amazing and I'm really uh, I'm I know this sounds odd I'm so proud of what you're doing and I'm so proud of you because you're you know just to see you and know you how I've known you and just I'm just blown away I I, I think you're amazing and you look fantastic thank you're, you you're like a when I sit across from you, you're like a leader of men and women. It's like it's amazing. It's like it's like you you, not to say you weren't before, but you just you're just so coming to your own. It's just incredible. You're well, amazing. it's very it's very um. Sweet and I, of and you. I'm being honest. I would. I yes, you know. I I have no filter. No, it's hey. You know what? I uh, I wanted to talk about last comic standing. We'll we'll, we'll come back. We can I always talk thought, about anything. I always thought that you guys, and which I love. Watch when I got knocked off last comic standing. I never said anything like oh, it wasn't fair because I think I don't think I got on there fairly. I think I always thought like you know what I mean. I always thought like you and Jay were like you, did, you didn't get on there fairly. Well, you know what I mean by that. I mean that in a good way. I mean like I thought like you and Jay were like this is what I tell. I go. You, I think him and Jay went as as whatever you could do within the guidelines of what was you know you can't. I had, to, I had to sign a 66-page contract that said I could not be in any meeting, I could not do anything and figure out anything. 
but there's still ways of figuring out things to get you know your point across if you have to get it across. I didn't influence any decisions on the nights some people were voting, but I you know in terms of you comics got- getting their shot and getting in front of the right people, you know you did that. I I actually you know, this will shock you. I was always surprised that you got as far as you did because you were, it just seemed like you were just pushing the envelope so often. And you know what? The weird and thing so, is, like more than anybody else, yet the mainstream audience still loved that about you. Well, like you were on the floor. I remember one set you were like on the floor crawling, begging around the floor. to get knocked off. Yeah, I'm like, please throw me out. I don't want to be here. But you know, the odd thing is, I had so much fun doing that, and I loved that I was a part of when history writes itself. That I could tell, you know, m- you know, my even my nieces and nephews. I'm not embarrassed to talk about last comic standing about what it's like to have be on camera all the time and you drop a bottle and then all of a sudden from a door somebody walks out with a bus pan you forget there's people there at three in the morning watching what everything you do and 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 no coincidence that your money went way up after that show because you were on television every week not only that you're on i wasn't i was not ready for that and you were acting too you don't know it but in your interviews you were acting and it was was, fantastic me and gary goleman we had so much fun doing bits we did bits but anyway we will talk about it again we will come back and we'll, we'll, we'll um, you know, I didn't even, I wanted to ask you so much about, like, every guest you had, I wanted to ask you something about Some them. amazing stories. I know, guests. I know. But, so you know, listen hopefully to they'll listen to it. Industry Standards. Industry Standards. Industry. All right, so Barry, um, you know what, it sounds cheesy, but I love that you're here and I, you said things that really made me uh, melt and I appreciate it and, um, I, uh, and, I'm, uh, and we'll do it again. Well, thank you so much. It was really an honor to be here. I loved it, and I hope that you'll have me back someday. Yeah, this was like, you know, when the hors d'oeuvres are really good at a party. No, not a party where the hors d'oeuvres are shitty. A d'oeuvre where you go to the party, and they're fucking hors d'oeuvres. They know what they're doing. But then there's no doubting the steak comes, and that's what you fucking want. And that's what we're going to do. Next time I'll get into all those other good questions, And uh, but this was a great start. I look forward to it. Congratulations on all your success. Goodbye. Now leaving Nerdist.com.